So Emma, have you ever used HeLa cells in the lab? I have not used HeLa cells. So if you guys don't know what HeLa cells are, they're a type of human cell line that are used by scientists worldwide. And most of us have at least read one paper using HeLa cells. And a lot of scientists use them because they're very easy to use and they are very hardy cells. So they don't really die, even if you do stuff to them. Yeah, I've never used these cells either, but I have read three papers this week using the cells. So they're, <laughs> they're pretty common. They're pretty widespread. But more than just being a human cell line, they were actually the first human cell line and really caused a revolution in biology. But few biologists actually teach about Henrietta Lacks, who is the black woman that the cells came from, and how she and her family were mistreated and misinformed by doctors and researchers during the whole process. Much of this was brought to light by a book titled The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, in which the author Rebecca Scalute connects with the family and helps them tell Henrietta's story. Yeah, so I read this book for the first time um, as an undergraduate just starting research, and it was a lot of fun to reread this book as a graduate student um, with a totally different perspective. I mean, the first time I read the book, I had never touched a human cell line. Um, so that felt really different. <laughs> yeah, I think I read this book middle of high school and I was just totally enraptured by the story, but also the science. Like Rebecca does such a good job of really showing you the human side of science and how science can affect people and for generations to come. But also this book brought to light many, many instances of where uh, our science society has not treated people well, especially black people. Yeah, I feel like this book should be required reading. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, we definitely recommend this book to any to anyone and everyone, especially someone who's interested in pursuing a career in the biomedical sciences. It's important to know where these important tools and discoveries came from, and especially to understand the mistakes we've made as scientists so that we can do better in the future. Definitely. And you know, I, I think it's special reading the book as a scientist, but also th it's very accessible to non-scientists too. So if you have family members that are interested in this, my dad saw me reading this book and he said that he wants to read it after me. I think um, Rebecca does a good job at, you know, explaining the science in very like accessible terms. So anyone can kind of get it. And, you know, these cells, if they haven't just been used in these obscure journal articles that uh, Emma and I are, are reading. Um, we'll t as we'll get into, they've really touched, you know, wide areas of biology and have been involved in um, things like the polio vaccine. So I think it would be interesting to a broad audience. So Rachel, who was Henrietta Lacks? Henrietta Lacks was a black woman who was born in the 1920s, and she was the youngest of 10 children, but sadly her mother died during childbirth. So after that, all of her brothers and sisters ended up getting scattered amongst relatives to raise them. And Henrietta went to live with her grandfather in Clover, Virginia, where they made a living by tobacco farming. In the town of Clover, the physical effects of racism are very apparent. In the book, Rebecca describes visiting Clover and its segregation into white and black lax towns, where many of Henrietta's relatives live. Yeah, so Henrietta's paternal great-great-grandmother was a slave named Morning, 
And her maternal great-grandfather was a white man named Albert Lax. Um, so when Lax died, he left much of his properties to his black children. When Albert's brother Benjamin died, he ended up giving more property to his own black children. Neither Albert nor Benjamin ever married or had white children. They certainly took advantage of their black slaves that they owned, and the present-day white Laxes refuse to acknowledge their relation to the black Laxes to this day. So that's how white and black Laxtown originated in Clover. In the book, Rebecca does try to interview some of the white Lax relatives, and they insist that the black Lax simply share the last name because they were former slaves owned by the brothers and took their name. Sure, that is one possible explanation. But the white relatives also go on to discuss how they don't think school integration programs are the right thing to do because black and white people shouldn't mix and marry. Um, and Rebecca Sklut wrote this book in the 2000s, so these kinds of sentiments are sadly very much still alive in America. And interestingly, the Lax town is only miles away from a lynching tree and a KKK meeting site that was active up until the 1980s. So all this to say, if we think about the context where Henrietta grew up, even though slavery was abolished, there were obviously, we know, Jim Crow laws going on and a lot of anti-black sentiments, even from her own blood relatives. Henrietta was described by her family as beautiful and full of life. She loved to go out dancing with um, one of her favorite cousins, Sadie, and she would put meticulous effort into applying this stylish red toenail polish. So in the book, they talk about the other guy in the neighborhood, Crazy Joe, who was totally smitten with Henrietta and was always doing anything possible to get her attention, even threatening to kill himself. Crazy Joe, you can't say he didn't try. <laughs> Sadly for Joe, Henrietta was in love with her sweetheart, Day, and they married and had five children together, three sons and two daughters. So one of her daughters, Deborah, is actually interviewed extensively in the book. But the other daughter, Elsie, was born with some mental handicaps and had to be committed to an asylum once Henrietta got really sick. Henrietta loved being a mom and just wanted to have so many children. Unfortunately, after her fifth child, Henrietta was diagnosed with advanced cervical cancer. She went to Johns Hopkins for treatments because it was one of the only major hospitals in the area that would actually treat black people in the 1950s. After the diagnosis, Henrietta went back and forth for treatments, which included removing the tumor and placing a radium tube directly inside her cervix, and also follow-up radiation treatments that ended up burning her stomach black. At the time, she didn't know that these treatments would make her infertile, which would have been soul-crushing knowledge to Henrietta because she wanted to have more children. Yeah, this, this detail was pretty surprising to me. Um that the doctors just failed to to inform her properly what what effect the treatments would have on her fertility. I mean, nowadays, with informed consent and everything, like we discussed in the last episode, hopefully that wouldn't happen. But during the majority of the treatment, Henrietta was strong, and she didn't complain or tell much of her family what was really going on. She was so accustomed to taking care of others that she didn't want anybody else to worry, but eventually she got so sick that her relatives found out. And her relatives were so supportive. You can tell Henrietta is a beloved member of her family. Five of her male cousins rushed over to John Hopkins when they heard she needed more blood transfusions just to help her out. But even with all of these efforts, it wasn't enough. 
we now know that the key to preventing death from cervical cancer is the HPV vaccine, as well as regular trips to the gynecologist for early detection. But unfortunately, Henrietta's cancer was already too far along. This is one of the saddest parts of the book for me because everything that happened to Henrietta like would have been so preventable nowadays if we'd had the knowledge, the HPV vaccine, as well as if she'd had access to medical care. Henrietta died on October 4th, 1951, at just over the age of 30. Her daughter, Deborah, who was interviewed extensively in the book, was only four years old at this time. And this is one of the greatest tragedies. Not only would Deborah's family go on to be taken advantage of, and her mom's tissue be taken and manipulated and used for all these scientific projects, but Deborah never got to know her mother. Now, during the whole time that the Lax family is dealing with this family tragedy, researchers were experimenting with the tumor that they had extracted from Henrietta without her or her family's knowledge. Yes, believe it or not, at this time, researchers were trying to figure out how to grow human cells outside of the body. Having this ability would allow scientists to study fundamental aspects of biology and uncover new therapies. But they just couldn't figure out the perfect conditions to make cells grow outside the body. Exactly. So this was kind of the struggle going on in the scientific field at the time when Henrietta's tumor was removed by Dr. Lawrence Wharton. Without even thinking to ask Henrietta's permission, which granted was not common practice at the time, Dr. Wharton gave her tissue to Dr. George Guy, one of the scientists who is desperately trying to figure out how to grow these human cells. And they were pretty shocked when Henrietta's cancer cells started growing at an amazing pace. They would double in amount every day. Years later, we now understand that the cells grew so well partly because she was infected with the HPV virus or a human papillomavirus. Her cells grew so well that later on, scientists discovered they could actually commonly contaminate and take over other cell lines. This is part of why in research today, we always have to validate our cell lines and prove that they actually are what, what we think they are before we publish um, data dealing with those cell lines and research articles. Oh, for sure, because there have been several papers that have been retracted because people tried to validate the results from the papers and found out like, oh, no, these cells they thought were other cancer cell lines were actually HeLa cells that had just taken over. So it affected all of their results and conclusions. Yep, they are very robust cells. <laughs> so the guy lab called these cells HeLa because at the time it was common practice to use the first two initials of the first and last name of the patient from which the cells were obtained. Now, this is considered a gross violation of privacy, and this became a huge source of confusion after the fact when Henrietta was identified as Helen Lane in some articles instead of Henrietta Lacks. This development to be able to grow cells and cultures was groundbreaking. So Dr. Guy started distributing the cells for free all around the country and eventually even into Europe so that everyone could share this new tool. Meanwhile, the Lacks family didn't even know that Henrietta's cells were still alive, and it was pretty traumatizing to her family to learn about this decades later. And if you think about it, Guy was selling these cells, and her family was getting no profit or royalties or anything from it. And on top of failing to inform the family about the cells, researchers later tracked down the Lacks family and requested blood draws for research purposes. 
The Lacks family misunderstood and thought they were being tested for cancer. And the hospital failed to follow up with the family, leaving them, especially Deborah, wondering if they would die of the same fate as their mother at age 30. Now, this whole situation is obviously horrible, how the Lacks family was treated. And I don't want to make light of how they were treated at all. But um, I think we can all agree that there were mistakes that were made. But I did want to dedicate some time to talk about what HeLa cells have done for science and some of the positives. The Lacks family always thought of Henrietta as somebody who doted on her family and really enjoyed taking care of people, so they feel like it's only fitting that her cells have lived on to help so many people. So I wanted to talk about some of the discoveries that have happened with HeLa cells. One of the most well-known uses of her cells was that they were utilized to develop the polio vaccine in the 1950s. So HeLa cells were susceptible to the polio virus, and they would die when exposed to it. Hence, researchers thought they could use HeLa cells to test the effectiveness of a vaccine. So they would treat the cells with blood serum from vaccinated children and then expose the cells to polio virus. If the vaccine was effective, the cells would survive. And this saved researchers $50 million that it would have cost to use monkeys for testing and also helped them to avoid sacrificing animals for this research purpose at all. HeLa cells have also been used to develop technology for in vitro fertilization and cancer treatments. They've traveled all over the country, the world, and even up into space. They've been used to test the effects of space and nuclear radiation on human cells. Once the demand for HeLa cells grew, scientists started mass producing these cells, and this helped to standardize cell culture practices and for scientists to produce rigorous and reproducible results. The heart of HeLa cell distribution started at the Tuskegee Institute, which is one of the most prestigious black universities in the country, specifically at the behest of Charles Byam, a science teacher and civil rights advocate, who hoped this would provide funding and job opportunities for young aspiring black scientists. Now we know that Tuskegee, was, from our previous episode, was also the location of the infamous and pretty despicable Tuskegee syphilis trials by state officials. So kind of somewhat ironically, the distribution of HeLa cells occurred simultaneously with those studies. Another issue with wider distribution is the commercialization of HeLa cells. The Lacks family didn't even know that Henrietta's cells were being sold until 1976, and this was 25 years after her death, which brings us into the biomedical implications of human tissue and cell research. The two biggest issues with regards to tissue rights are, of course, consent and money. In the case of HeLa cells, privacy was absolutely violated. A man named Michael Gold published details of Henrietta's medical files without her family's consent. At the time, this technically wasn't illegal, but publishing medical records without permission today would violate federal laws, and in general, now we have a much better practice of patient confidentiality. Right, and consent was also violated there because scientists weren't transparent with the family about how Henrietta's tissues were being used. People read this story today and wonder... Wasn't this illegal? How come nobody was penalized for this gross misconduct? But it wasn't illegal, and most of it still isn't. Yeah, and these issues continue to arise, too. Towards the end of the book, Rebecca tells two other stories of John Moore and Ted Slavin. Both men had biological aspects that were considered marketable. 
So John Moore had a type of leukemia that filled his spleen with malignant cancer cells. He had his spleen removed, and his doctor started developing a cell line without his knowledge, very similar to the situation with Henrietta. Whereas Slavin had blood that produced antibodies to hepatitis B, and this blood could be used to develop a vaccine. Unfortunately, John Moore's doctor tried to hide his work from Moore. Slavin's doctor, on the other hand, was very open with him, and Slavin ended up working with biotech companies and making a fair amount of money. He also probably helped accelerate development of the vaccine, so it's possible for researchers and patients to work together. The problem is when people get greedy. That's right. If researchers request the tissue up front, they have to get consents. But there's this gray area if the hospital is just storing it for diagnostics and wants to use it in in the future for research. They don't need your consent. In other words, if you go to the doctor to get blood taken or have any kind of tissue removed, that is no longer considered a part of your body or your property. Instead of destroying it, hospitals can keep your discarded tissue without your knowledge. They even use blood samples from most infants because genetic testing for diseases in newborns is mandated in the U.S. So even if I've never had surgery, my blood could be sitting in some freezer somewhere? Yep. Plus, at least at the time this book was published in 2009, companies like 23andMe made customers sign an agreement that the company could store their samples for future research. Thankfully, now they have an option where you can say that you don't want them to store your sample and they will destroy it once they go through and give you your genetic profile. And it's kind of hard because on the one hand, as a scientist, this could provide so much access to samples for developing therapies to help people. But on the other hand, as a person... I can't help but think of this as a violation of trust. You don't have much choice in the matter. If you have cancer, you're not going to sit around debating about what the doctors will do with the tumor afterwards. You just need them to take it out. Exactly. And there's also the question of whether we should all have a blind responsibility to science or whether we should be compensated for our tissues. I mean, why should it be given for free um, without our consent? Consent can be really tricky, though. Research-driven tissue collecting facilities such as the NIH do have to get consent. And the consent policies often have to detail exactly how the tissue will be used. And at the time the tissue is taken, doctors and researchers may not even realize its potential. So if a new scientific technique is discovered that researchers want to try with that tissue, they may end up having to drop a whole new consent form. And this can be such a mess. It is sure to slow down any projects. I've even heard of groups just entirely collecting new samples because it's too much of a headache for the biobank to track everybody down. And some of these donors might be deceased if they need to update the consent because you want to use that tissue for something that you didn't list on the original consent form. Even beyond the types of manipulations done to tissues, some tissue rights advocates argue that donors should have a say in what kind of research is done with their tissues. For example, if you're against abortion, shouldn't you have a say as to whether your tissue is used in that research area? There are some protections that exist, however. The big protection that they mention in the book is the common rule. This is a federal policy that requires consent for all human subject research. In practice, most research is not technically covered by this practice because either one, it's not federally funded, or two, it's not considered human research if the researcher does not learn the patient's identity. This seems like kind of a ridiculous exception to me. I mean, I 
work with human brain samples a lot and I can't look at a piece of human brain in the lab without thinking where it came from you know that came from a human being so this just seems silly however the federally funded restriction is also a big loophole because some biobanks that store tissues are not federally funded President Obama's administration tried to revise this policy in 2017 to require scientists to get consent for any research using blood, DNA, or cells from a patient, but they faced a lot of backlash and eventually dropped it. Again, critics were concerned that this kind of policy would hinder biomedical research. And one of the aspects of the rule that President Obama's administration was successful in changing was a requirement that consent forms be simplified. This makes sense because is it really informed consent if you have to read a 10-page document with heavy and technical scientific jargon? In 1996, HIPAA was passed, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act that protects patient privacy. And, you know, Emma and I have to do a HIPAA training even in in our bench research in the lab. This is the federal law that would make it illegal to disclose medical records without consent. We've also talked about one of these protections before when we discussed the Golden State Killer in one of our YouTube episodes. This protection is called GINA, or the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act of 2008, and this protects against discriminations from employers or health insurance companies based on your genetics. But in 2020, this policy may be outdated, and we do know that life insurance companies can actually get access to your genetic information to decide if they want to give you coverage. And this controversy continues to the present day. So in 2013, a German researcher published the HeLa cell genome. And if the cells have been properly de-identified, meaning, you know, we couldn't link that sample to a specific person, this might not have been such an issue, but obviously HeLa cells are infamous, and we know that the Lacks family has been very publicly linked to these HeLa cells, so this was a huge violation of privacy. Even if the identity of the genome was not known, by publishing the entire genome, it's possible to identify a person based on that information. That's what happened with the Golden State Killer. I think it was his cousin was looking and trying to match his information to see if he had any other relatives, and then this ended up alerting police who matched the DNA with the Golden State Killer and were able to track him down. So it's a big violation of privacy to have your DNA sequence published, especially if people can find out potential diseases you could have without you knowing it. James Watson was one of the discoverers of the DNA structure along with Maurice Wilkins, Francis Crick, and mainly Rosalind Franklin, who discovered the actual structure of DNA. But anyway... When James Watson's DNA sequence was published in 2007, he requested that the information about his APOE gene not be published. As a bit of background, APOE is the gene that's been associated with Alzheimer's. Watson didn't want to know himself about the gene and his potential Alzheimer's-associated variant, and he wanted to leave the decision up to his family if they ever wanted to know. Because by knowing this information, they could know if they potentially had a predisposition to Alzheimer's later on in life. In the case of the Lacks family, their data were removed from public view because of this sort of concern, and the NIH and the Lacks family agreed that researchers would have to submit an application that's reviewed by scientists and representatives of the Lacks family before they could ever access that data. It is really great that the family actually has a seat at the table now, 
but it's just kind of sad that they had to go through this kind of traumatic privacy violation in order to get that. Yeah, I can't imagine the mental and emotional stress that would come from learning these kind of things after the fact and having to make decisions. Oh, yeah. I mean, Deborah, um, in the book, she gets very stressed out every time something comes up with her mom's cells and she ends up having a couple strokes, I think, uh, which obviously there could be other factors. But, you know, huge stress like this definitely plays into that. Another ethical issue to bring up relates to our episode from last week. Much like the doctors that injected syphilis into patients without their knowledge or consent, Chester Southam injected HeLa cells into the arms of cancer patients and told them he was testing their immune systems. Many of the patients developed tumors, which in one case metastasized to the lymph nodes, and he started injecting his healthy patients too in hopes of immunizing them to cancer. It's horrific enough that Southam decided to do this to his own patients, but he soon turned to an even more vulnerable population, prison inmates. So, I mean, it's just horrifying to think about. Um, The book says that it's estimated he injected over 600 people. And he's injecting these people with known cancerous cells, which are very likely going to lead to them getting cancer in their body. And the only punishment he received for this was a slap on the wrist and a one-year medical life suspension. I mean, he didn't actually receive a slap on the wrist, but that was his... (laughs) Suspension was his slap on the wrist. Yeah, which is is nothing compared to what he did to all these people. I mean, just just regular women coming in for gynecology appointments, he would inject all of them um, just on the regular. It's disgusting. But, I mean, Southam was a renowned cancer researcher... And so after his probation, he was welcomed back into the field. He was elected president of the American Association for Cancer Research. And really, he didn't suffer much consequences at all. And this isn't the first time as a scientific community that we venerate these figures for their accomplishments and push aside their problematic pasts. Of course. I mean, Jim Watson comes to mind since we've been talking about him. Um We know that he has espoused eugenics beliefs, yet we celebrate him as one of the fathers of DNA. Jim Watson has literally been quoted saying, There's a difference on the average between blacks and whites on IQ tests. I would say the difference is, it's genetic. So in the next episodes, we are going to discuss race and genetics as a topic that far too often is not taught or talked about and therefore is widely misunderstood. 